0: Welcome back to ruining your childhood I'm Kirsten I'm Sarah and uh, we're talking about a wrinkle in time today I'm so excited to talk about this I I am too I'm very excited Uh, I mentioned last week this is my favorite book ever and uh and I'm mostly gonna be talking about the book there are two movie versions that I'm going to touch on but the main thing is is the book but Kirsten what what's your experience with a wrinkle in time
1: so, I've never read the book, and I did not watch the most recent movie. I did watch the uh, first movie adaptation, but I was so small that I do not remember anything. I could not give you one single character name or a single plot point. So, I am fresh.
0: Well, that, that's exciting, actually. I'm excited to... Just explain this whole ass plot to you, but not the whole thing. I'm not gonna like spoil it or like ruin it for you or the good people of the world. Um, <laughs> but
1: our beloved listeners, who we appreciate
0: so much, every single one of you, wow, bless. So getting started with it, it was written in the late '50s by uh, Madeline Langle who published in 1962. After being rejected by very, very many publishers. Because they just didn't get it. They didn't get who it was for. Like, is this a kid's book? Is this an adult's book? And, like, sci-fi was not particularly... Like, there wasn't a lot of sci-fi children's literature at this point. I'm
1: trying to think about like any children's sci-fi at that time and it's hard to think about basically when i think about sci-fi in the early 60s i just think of star
0: trek and like b movies yeah and like it's not i don't want to say it's like high sci-fi in the way that star trek is it's more on the more scientific if that makes sense it's less space agey and more just like there's scientific theories in it that, that are referenced, which is okay. also why people just thought it was way too complicated for kids. And then on top of that, it is one of the most frequently banned and challenged books in like libraries, particularly I, like school libraries. I
1: did not know that. I didn't know there was bannable content. It's
0: complicated. There's there's a lot to it, and uh, but also less so nowadays. More more back when it was originally published, uh, and there are several key reasons. Uh, but I'm going to just bring them up throughout because the, the, there's a lot and they, they they become relevant throughout. The first primary reason that I already mentioned is that a lot of people find it too challenging for children. But Langle disputes this and uh, the foreword of the edition that I read or rather listened to. Uh, and by the way, she, she passed away in 2007, so she is uh, no longer alive. So she must have recorded this foreword a long time ago even though this was a new edition that I was listening to because it also had a foreword by Ava DuVernay. So Ooh, awesome. Yeah, it was it was a it was a good, uh, highly recommend the audiobook, by the way, the narrator does a fantastic job. She has character voices. It's great.
1: I'm in you know how much I love a good audiobook.
0: Oh, yeah, like this, this is a great thing for you to like, just listen to while you work while you know, it, 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 it's lovely. But Langold is not into the idea that it's too challenging for children. Uh, In the foreword, she says, it's not too challenging for children, it's too challenging for adults. And I think that's very true. It's it's pretty philosophical, and I think adults think it's going to be too challenging, but I think, I don't know, kids are smarter than we think. Kids have really multiple
1: minds, and I feel like they sort of rise to the occasion. Like, if they're only reading very simplistic hardy boy plots, then yeah. that's all they're going to be able to comprehend. But when you throw other stuff at them, they adjust.
0: Yeah, and kids are very good at, like, really diving into the lore of things.
1: Yeah, uh, kids are famous for
0: having imagination, so... Yes. And that's actually, like, like so she she knew that kids would get it because she was reading it. As she was writing it, she was reading it little by little to her own kids at night. And they were like gripped by it and like begging her to write more, which, yeah, it is awesome. That's like the most adorable thing I've ever heard. And also she says it's specifically intended for children between the ages of eight and 12. Well, she said that, but she's also said when asked like who the audience is, she just says it's for people. But she also said that it's, it's especially hard hitting for kids of those ages because kids are at that age are most open to this type of like magical sci-fi fantasy world. And all like the possibilities within that. And I think from what I gathered, her kids were, she has like several and they were right within that age range when she was reading it to them as she was writing it. So uh, I would say that is uh, a tested theory. She went about this very scientifically. She's like, let me get a good
1: sample audience here.
0: Oh yeah, she is very clearly like a science enthusiast. And I think that's lovely. Like, it, it really shines through in the book. So I'm going to do kind of a plot summary from Wikipedia, but broken up into chunks. Uh, and not the whole thing. I really don't want to, like, just give away the ending. And the ending's not particularly, like, surprising. It's more the journey. But, you know, I'm not going to just get too detailed with it. The book very famously starts out with the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. So like, that's kind of the mindset you have going into it. And that's very fitting because it was a dark and stormy day today here in
1: 2020. So uh, we're, we're in the mindset to hear this story.
0: Yes, so, one night, 13 year old Meg Murray meets an eccentric new neighbor, Mrs. Whatsit, who refers to something called a tesseract. She later finds out it is a scientific concept her father was working on before his mysterious disappearance. The following day, Meg, her child genius brother, Charles Wallace, and classmate Calvin visit Mrs. Whatsit's home, where the equally strange Mrs. Who and the unseen voice of Mrs. Witch promise to help Meg find and rescue her father. Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which turn out to be supernatural beings who transport Meg, Charles Wallace, and Calvin through the universe by means of tesseract, a fifth-dimensional phenomenon explained as folding the fabric of space and time, so basically a wrinkle in time. So that's kind of the big gist.
1: Time out. Did Marvel steal the idea of the tesseract
0: from this book? I don't know, because I think the tesseract is more of a general sci-fi concept. So I'm just going to I'm just going to Google tesseract real quick. Uh, it's a, Okay, it's a geometrical term, uh, which is a four-dimensional analog of the cube. Uh, so, yeah. Well,
1: now we all know that I didn't know what a tesseract was. <laughs> I didn't
0: know either. It's, okay. <laughs> it's basically like if, and this is actually a thing they get into the, in the book, and I'm just making this connection now. So like one dimension is you draw a line, and then two dimensions is you draw a square, and then... 3 dimensions is like when you draw like that like cube thing and then so tesseract is like the fourth dimensional cube which is like a cube within a cube. So I don't know. I but I, I don't know why they use that or why why she used that phrase for this concept, but basically like tessering is how the missuses travel through time and space. And it's basically like you just they have an analogy where you f- it's like if a bug is trying to get from one side of a piece of paper to another instead of just going across the piece of paper, you fold the paper.
1: Okay, I think I've heard that analogy. So maybe I do remember that from the original movie, but that's very familiar to me. That specific like explaining of how how the folding of time works.
0: Yeah, I think I think there's going to be a few things in this that like you vaguely recognize from the movie because there was something like when I read the book for the first time there were a couple things where I was like like I was having like weird flashbacks to like a, a very strange movie because the the 2003 movie is very strange <laughs> not bad I don't think but because I actually couldn't watch it for this because uh, it's not streaming anywhere and I didn't want to pay four dollars for it so I just used my memory but here's a good time to point out a few things uh, there's a good deal of emphasis put on her dad's disappearance and how it kind of impacted their lives because he went away on a government job and nobody has seen or heard from him in a while and they have no idea what happened to him. So he's a scientist and um, in the movie, in the newer movie, they have him like working for NASA, but I don't know that, I don't know when NASA was created, but <laughs> I should know. NASA definitely existed in 1962. I don't know. Anyway, he was working for the government And on a scientific project that was super top secret, and then they just stopped getting letters from him. And people in their town are constantly giving them side eye, and there's rumors that he, like, ran off with some floozy or whatever. Oh my goodness.
1: Townspeople are the worst.
0: They are. And, like, it makes Meg super angry. She, like, gets in trouble at school a lot because she fights people when they say, they talk shit on her dad. Or when they talk shit on her little brother. And I'll get into that in a second. Because a very key thing here is that a lot of the characters in this book are like... They feel very much like they're coded as autistic. Like most of the characters. Alright. Not only to me. Because I thought like, is this just me? And I looked it up and other people seemed to think so. And uh, specifically I found an article written by Sophie Katz for Odyssey and she agrees so look up that article if you want like more specific details on that but obviously since this was written in 1962 this was most likely not intentional because that it was just less common of a diagnosis just not as well uh, understood as today but if I had to guess I would bet that Madeline Langle was maybe either unknowingly autistic or had a family member that was unknowingly autistic and made the characters like her or like that person but a disclaimer there I don't I don't know enough about Madeline Langle to actually make that determination I'm just saying it's a possibility because that's like a thing that happens a lot when writers create very like specifically autistic coded characters but don't know that they're doing that
1: they're not even aware that That's how they're coding their characters, especially this time period. I mean, I'm not sure when people started diagnosing autism, but, you know, I feel like character traits that would have been written off as just character traits could be part of autism at this time and just be undiagnosed autism or other types of neurodivergence.
0: Right. Yeah. Like I think at this time, I think it was occasionally diagnosed, but only in like certain scenarios and then how it was dealt with was very problematic uh because you know the history of neurodivergence and how people were treated is uh not good um still not great <laughs> still it's still not great you absolutely great. right <laughs> it, 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 it ain't fantastic um, but...
1: I was just thinking the like tagline of our show could be it used to be worse it's still not great <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, yeah, like, every episode we're like, uh, wow, things were really racist back then. It's like, oh, but they still are. Believe it or not, it's still around. <laughs> like, ooh, we still have ableism. Who would have thought? But the most obviously autistic character is young Charles Wallace, who is, I forget if he's four or five. In the movie, I think he's six but it's heavily noted that he didn't start speaking until he was three or four and then when he did he immediately could speak in like these complete eloquent sentences with big words but he would only speak to his family and the mrs w's so people in their town think of him as like not very bright but he's actually like a genius and uh will have like a word of the day that's like this big long word and he he understands that he's also portrayed as like sort of an empath like he seems to have this sixth sense of like understanding people that the other people don't have that's very unique and which I like because I think so often a stereotype of autistic people in media is that they're unfeeling and so I think having this character that is you know hit the nail on the head very much autistic traits be very highly empathetic to like a very high degree is is cool and I love that
1: I love this character so much already
0: yeah he's adorable in the movie the book he's just he's just a very sweet little boy who's very smart and then his sister Meg who is in very many ways an average awkward 13 year old but also struggles in school not for lack of intelligence but because she wants to do things particularly like math in her own way and they want to force her to do it their way so she has there's a lot of like friction there where she insists on doing it her way doing everything her way and there's a lot of confrontations with teachers
1: oh I love this aspect so much because for kids who don't learn in typical ways school can be difficult so I love that this character is very smart but is having a hard time with school because she learns in a different way or thinks in a different way this is this is great I mean and this is extremely like progressive for when it was written to think about kids as learning differently
0: right yeah and also I think because as we talked about with Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys it was so much more common in this time to have the protagonist be popular and like well-liked in school and they had friends and this the protagonist being like an awkward nerdy person is not common. This is very new for this time period and it's actually part of also why this was not very well liked with publishers right away because the protagonist wasn't your typical protagonist in like the late 50s early 60s especially for I mean already it's a female-led sci-fi thing so right off the bat it's it's different and then to have this particular character and not like just a classic like femme fatale kind of character is very interesting she's not perfect and
1: publishers are like wait how will kids relate to this non-perfect child how they won't want to read this at all and it's like no this is what kids want they want to see themselves reflected in characters especially if they're struggling they definitely want to feel like their story is universal so yeah. kids really
0: want this Right, right. And I think this is something that was just starting to be like locked into with authors and people who create media. And the their father, though, not a character we know a whole lot about until much later in the book, because, you know, he's away somewhere. Missing? Yeah, he's missing. And eventually he does, He they find him, like, spoiler alert. Um, but he's painted, though, as like kind of an eccentric genius type, which is, very much a frequent, like, stereotype of autistic people and autistic-coded characters. So, y- you could say that, too. Uh, the article I read also makes an argument that the mom is, too, which is, like, a lot better at masking her traits. And, I, you know, I could see that. I, I feel like they didn't go a whole lot in depth into the mom, though.
1: But also, that's, like, a very much of its time thing, is that, like, men were given more wiggle room to be, wiggle room wiggle room. <laughs> wiggle room wiggle wiggle room to be its eccentric geniuses and given the space to go to college and build on that sort of interest when women were like no you have to fit in with societal norms or you're useless in this yeah. in this whole world just you're going to have to shrink yourself to fit in yeah so even if the mother like has those traits, she would have to hide them so much more just to fit in at all with society. and yeah. the dad has maybe a little more freedom to express himself.
0: so I think that is I would say like a I would agree with you there that is a much more realistic depiction. Uh, and also she is also a scientist. She is a I think a microbiologist, whereas he is an astrophysicist.
1: That's pretty amazing yeah. that we have a college educated mom.
0: Yes, like, they're both, like, equally very intelligent. I love smart moms. Yeah, me too. I think this is pretty different so far from, from, uh I mean, compared to, like, the, the Hardy Boys mom like coming off of that last week where she- Yeah,
1: coming <laughs> off of Hardy, Hardy Boys mom who says, uh, I will not pamper my children into being cowards and I don't care what they're doing and I never have an opinion, to have- microbiologist career woman mom is yeah. a very welcome change.
0: And also, she's not unfeeling or uncaring. She is very caring of Meg and Charles Wallace and also her other two kids that the re- like, I haven't mentioned them yet because they're almost irrelevant. There are these uh, set of twin boys named Sandy and Dennis who are like, a, I think a couple, like a year or two behind Meg. And they are I think their sole purpose in the book is to paint the difference between them and like Meg and Charles Wallace, because they're like,
1: are they, dare we say the himbos of the book?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're very himbo and also like, quote unquote, normal. And like, I would say, Ugh, probably normies, <laughs> right? Boo. Yeah, they're very, like, unlikable characters in comparison with the others because, like, they, they're they just, they seem more uh, neurotypical and, like, they're used as, like, a foil to Meg. Like, they, they're well-liked in school, they play sports, like, they they go with the flow a lot more, uh, they, you know, they play Little League. But they're not in either of the movie adaptations because I think it would have been, because they, they have, like, no role in the story whatsoever except to show the difference between them and Meg. That, that is their sole purpose.
1: I love that the extremely uh, normal kids are just the side characters in this one.
0: <laughs> yes, like this is the opposite of the Hardy Boys. Yeah, I, I love it. And then on top of that, the Mrs. W's here are not technically human, but also heavily autistic coded. They're these ethereal beings that uh, have kind of a hard time blending into the human world
1: same yeah <laughs> relatable, <It is> relatable.
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> it, like they, they don't really get like human customs because they're kind of like above it and mrs what's it in particular she's the first one we come across and she appears as very eccentric and she actually has some more autistic characteristics in the 2018 movie than she does in the book uh so the article I read points this out a lot because they made her a lot more blunt and like, I get it. So why can't other people get it too? Kind of thing. Kind of like a Sagittarius vibe. Big Sag vibe. Yeah. <laughs> but also like, it, it is fairly autistic coded because she she's just like so intelligent and her level of thinking is above humans. And so she just doesn't get why the others can't keep up. Uh, particularly Meg. Her and Meg kind of clash a lot in the movie. But in the book, she's a lot more, like, caring towards Meg. Will you tell me which actress
1: plays the characters in the 2018 movie with the three misses, just yes. so I can put a faith to these names? Yes,
0: I'll do it as we go along. So, like, the- Mrs. Okay. What's Perfect. It here it is uh, Reese Witherspoon. All right, she's also Perfect. the youngest of the bunch by like a billion years or however long. Like she,
1: <laughs> well, that's awesome. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh.
0: Like I'm young compared to them. And like, how old are you? And she's like, she just names this like outlandishly large number. And the second one we meet is Mrs. Who, and I would say she is out of the three of them the most autistic coded, because uh, and she this is Mindy Kaling in the movie. And uh, she has a hard time verbalizing the way humans do and instead speaks only in famous quotes in a variety of languages. So this is, this is a very uh, pretty common autistic trait of like relying on quotes and things like that to, to communicate because, because verbalizing is uh, maybe more of a challenge. But she also like, she comes in with very apt quotes for the time. And I think that is such a cool narrative tool. Uh, yes, I love it.
1: that's very interesting. And I also love that it's Mindy because I just love her in general and knowing that she's this character makes it better. I also love that it's in multiple languages. Yeah, because it would be silly for her to only know one language. Yeah. Because she's billions of years old.
0: Yeah, and she's not from Earth, like, <laughs> so she, you know, why would she have a specific preference to English speakers? Wonderful. And also, I, I in the 2018 movie, this is the one of the misses that are most true to the book. Although in the movie, they threw in kind of for some comedic relief that she she'll have quotes from like, like there's a couple quotes from like rap songs or something that are like kind of thrown in to be like funny.
1: That's super fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like I thought thought that was a fun touch. And then also, uh, although Katie texted this to the group chat last night, because I watched this last night with my mom and sister and we have a group chat that includes my sister. And she said that Mindy's character at one point quoted a Hamilton song and Oh man!
1: <laughs> oh, she quoted Hamilton the movie.
0: I thought when Katie sent
1: that text, I thought that she meant she had a quote from Alexander Hamilton because, like, the person, oh, not no. the show.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Okay,
1: because we have been shitting on Alexander Hamilton, the person, in our group chat pretty frequently.
0: Oh yeah, we went on this whole tirade the <laughs> other day about like uh how he was arrogant and not also not a good owner. person. Yeah yeah so slave owner and also
1: hated poor people so
0: yes exactly so but no the musical and so it was just got
1: it it's better that it's the musical and (laughs) not the person that makes it better i like it more knowing that
0: yes i do prefer that it's it is that although but (laughs) when she said it though we both like we're like It just caught it. It came out of left field for us. I don't know why. Yeah, it is. uh, (laughs) It it does uh, hit different. It really, (laughs) I think, I'll get more into this later, but I had some, I really wanted to like this movie so badly because I love Ava DuVernay. I love the cast. I love everything about this. Aesthetically, it was beautiful, but it was interesting. And I think it, it just lends itself to the fact that this is a very hard book to adapt to the screen so I think at this point because this was towards the end of the movie we were already kind of like oh this is this is a weird time so then when that happened and we would already talked about because instead of like a score at certain parts of the movie it plays like pop songs and that immediately dates a movie when you put pop songs instead of like orchestral right. scores but the, the main reason why I we were kind of like ah is because I think it just immediately dates it as 2018 like right around there you know
1: for sure, when the movie was literally the end all be all of American culture. Right. The only thing that happened culturally in two thousand eighteen was the movie Hamilton. <laughs> uh, uh, not the movie, the Broadway musical Hamilton. Same thing.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, eventually it was Whatever a movie. It is. Um, it's
1: a movie now. That like
0: Disney's think- secret, I- uh, covert way of advertising that they were gonna have Hamilton on Disney oh. Plus. <laughs>
1: Probably it was probably part of the deal that they could quote the song, and they were working with the uh, Lin-Man for a bunch of Disney stuff. That's so true. they
0: were like, "Yeah, sneak in a quote for me."
1: they were like, "Yeah, we'll uh we'll let you write the songs for Moana. You just gotta give us that sweet, sweet Hamilton."
0: <laughs> oh, like making a deal with the uh, the corporate devil. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Uh, Uh, but so the the main difference between mrs who and the book versus the movie is that there are a couple points in the movie where she verbalizes with like her own words and not quotes and i didn't like that change because like the, the, the reasoning was strange and i think it was just to move the plot along or like because in the book mrs who just doesn't speak very often but i think at some point they were like oh we can't just have mindy stand here uh so they just like gave her words to say
1: oh but you could have found a quote with those same words that just seems like it, it, do it all the time or don't do it right like, that seems like something you need to fully commit to yeah so even if you needed her to say something different then just pull a quote from somewhere else
0: yeah That's... or just have one of the other ladies say it like it's Right, I don't know. It just seemed strange, but so it, it was a little inconsistent there. Uh, but the last of the misses is is Mrs. Witch, which is the oldest of them and their leader, and that's Oprah. And um, it, it is interesting in the movie how like it's Oprah because like <laughs> because she shows up as like this giant person in the movie, not the book, and it's like a giant Oprah Winfrey coming from the <laughs> sky, it kind of takes you out of it a little bit. Yeah. Um, Wait, does she show up on Earth as a giant? Or are they... Okay. Yeah, and... and Alright. Like, in, in the book, instead of, like, a giant person, she is just sort of a barely materialized, like, glitter mist. Like, she... And yes. when she does materialize fully, she presents as a witch. Like, she looks witchy. Whereas... Um, which I think was an odd, I think that would have been kind of strange in a movie. Uh, but obviously, like, you've seen the trailers, I'm sure, uh, the, all three of these characters have, like, these very, uh, lavish wardrobes throughout the whole movie.
1: Right, that's, that's all that I remember from the trailer, honestly, is that it was Reese, Mindy, and Oprah, and they were dressed in really bright, really wonderful colors. And that's all I remember from the trailer, is just the three of them, And how colorful it all was.
0: Oh, yeah. It's very, very colorful. And there's a lot of wigs involved. And also, like, so I like that choice for when they're in, like, the magical, like, fifth dimensional world. But in the book, Mrs. What's It, when she first shows up, she's in, like, these frumpy, like, rags that she just kind of collected. And they did that a bit differently. And also, like, their earth makeup was a bit much for like the way their earthly presences were described in the book so i I think that was uh, maybe a weird choice for me like were they supposed to blend in with humans they were supposed to be like trying to blend in but not doing a very good job at it and
1: right so but but if you were trying to blend in you would wear not over-the-top costumes and makeup
0: yeah or like, just like picturing these characters like doing this intense makeup routine every day uh <laughs>
1: <laughs> this takes me four hours every morning
0: very intense uh, but that's I what know. you
1: humans are into i guess <laughs> uh, this version of the missus just spent a ton of
0: time on youtube like i guess this is what they do <laughs> You know what? I kind of vibe with it. Now that you put it that way, I think that's very funny. But they did they did have Reese Witherspoon show up when she like randomly shows up at their house. She's wearing there's a whole thing where she like stole someone's sheets and Charles Wallace is like, Why'd you do that? You're not supposed to steal. And she's like, eh, yeah, who cares? Uh, but but like <laughs> in the in the book it's kind of like part of this rag ensemble but in in the movie, she kind of makes a pretty dress out of it. So you know, it, it, it uh, tomato tomato um,
1: <laughs> but yeah, like like you said, these are just things that like work better because it's the like because of the medium, like they just yeah. work
0: better as a movie, right, like aesthetics although the the thing I find weird is that every. Place because they hop around to different fifth-dimensional locations throughout the movie and the book, and in the movie they have them a complete wardrobe change every time in like equally wild outfits, and so I don't know why that was necessary. (laughs) And also because uh, a thing I learned about this movie is that it ended up costing Disney a lot of money. Like they didn't make it was kind of a box office bomb. So maybe it would have been less expensive if they had had like less outfits
1: and like this is just a little problem i just feel like they didn't market the movie very well like like i said from the trailers the only thing that i remember are that the three main ladies are in it because they are very popular but also i just remember it being like bright colors and the plot wasn't explained in a simplistic way that would like get people's attention so I feel like this movie if you didn't have a connection to those three actresses or to the original story then it wouldn't have appealed to you
0: that's true and I think that one like trailers these days are like mood boards like they don't explain they are like
1: sometimes you want to know a little bit of what's going on when you walk in especially when it's a very fantastical movie like this like a little bit of a concise plot would be nice to just, like, get people through the door, I think.
0: Right. Well, like, the way they presented it, it's like, is this is this a drag ball? Like, it's, I'm just seeing...
1: <laughs> oh, actually, I would have been way more in yeah. if it was just
0: three famous drag queens. That would have been, as, oh, as that the been three so misses. cool. One day when I'm rich and famous, I... Uh... <laughs> From this podcast? <laughs> 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 um, one day, with uh, my my uh, piles of money, I'm going to make a version of this where it's the the missuses are all drag queens and just just for yes. fun. Yeah, I, that would be a fun romp for me yeah. to watch. I do think though that the transition between like the the earth and like the fantastical world would have been better if there was an elevation of their wardrobe because they started at like a hundred, right? And so there's no way right go. there's no You can't go up from there. So they just continued with, like, equally wild outfits. So instead, they could have had them in the more frumpier rags and then elevated it to that to match the scenery once they get to the the pretty place.
1: I'm kind of thinking about it in, like, terms of, like, Mary Poppins. And it's like, you know, whenever they're at their house, she wears her same outfit. Like, her very normal clothes and then when they jump into a a chalk drawing she's wearing like a fun outfit and you know that it's different because it elevates yeah exactly so it's like i think that's a an important visual cue for the audience and like you said it's like there's nowhere to go once you start at a hundred yeah like the build-up is fun The transformation is fun to watch. It's
0: like a big reveal that you're waiting for, especially because they they show that so heavily in the trailer that it would have been nice to not reveal that right off the bat in the movie, you know? Right. But yeah, so Mrs. Witch also has a time verbalizing and she, in the book, the narrator for the audiobook narrates her as like long drawn out words with like a low voice like that. And that's fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I'm I'm very into. And I don't actually know if it's written like that. If like it's written with like extra vowels and stuff, but that it's
1: or like the fonts especially huge and long. Yes.
0: Oh, that that'd be hilarious if it were like huge letters to like a big font size. That'd be funny.
1: Because you can do fun things like that in kids' book. That's what makes kids' literature fun. Yes. Is that you can have a character whose font is a different size. Yeah,
0: Lemony Snicket just mastered the art of like doing weird things with the text and I think I think they should that that could have been fun Yes. But yeah, so basically in summation of that, you know, most of the characters uh, fall somewhere on the spectrum and that's lovely. And I think that played into though why this was not loved right off the bat with like more conservative types in the 60s that were like, I don't get this. This is strange. Led by a socially awkward girl. Like that was not the mood at that time. And that trope of like the awkward nerdy girl being the protagonist wasn't big until the 90s and the 21st century so this was really leading the way here
1: this is like extremely progressive for the time
0: yeah obviously like we just talked about like meg is significantly more relatable and compelling of a character than like nancy drew but less of what adults in the 60s might have considered to be like a role model for kids and i think that's right
1: aspirational yeah yeah and it's like oh you know what there are different types of things to aspire to and being a badass big sister who sticks up for people and does things her own way that's aspirational it doesn't all have to be nancy drew falling into line and excelling at everything yeah
0: exactly it's good to have things Ooh, no i'll get into that later no i'll talk about it now um <laughs> there's a later part where like they're about to enter like a challenge challenging part of the book and the the is give them each gifts to help them along the way and Mrs. Whatsit what's it gives may the gift of her fault, and look, i love that so much yeah just that She's like, anyway just like
1: <laughs> will you embroider that on a pillow for me
0: and be like the gift of your faults like yeah you. yeah like it's it's good like it's beautiful because like meg hates herself like it is a thing and this carried over to the girl movie. same right like <laughs> so much more boring. she's like i would like to come back from this world as someone who's not me and so i think oh um,
1: that is the most like middle school girl sentiment i've ever heard right
0: oh my god uh, and, and, and I think they did one thing I do like about the movies that they do play out more the journey of self-acceptance for Meg and her being like I am unique but also that's a good thing oh I love it I
1: love it I love it I'm about to audiobook this the minute we in this uh, oh, podcast yeah. it's great
0: <laughs> oh uh, I can't recommend it enough but <laughs> Uh, I guess jumping back into the plot, because there is a lot more plot. Their first stop in their interdimensional travel is the planet Uriel, a utopian world filled with centaur-like beings who live in a state of light and love. The Mrs. W's reveal to the children that the universe is under attack from an evil being who appears as a large dark cloud called the Black Thing, which is essentially the personification of evil the children are taken to visit the happy medium a woman with a crystal ball through which they see that earth is partially covered by the darkness although great religious figures philosophers scientists and artists have been fighting against it Mrs. What's It is revealed to be a former star who exploded in an act of self-sacrifice to fight the darkness so let's unpack that uh, uh, any questions?
1: <laughs> let, let me I got a comment first of all I love that artists are on the same level as religious figures in this oh uh that is like i i love that idea so so much that all of these things serve a purpose of banishing darkness It's just in different ways and they're all beautifying the world in some way
0: yeah that's i I love that i love that that. there's a big theme of the book and that's actually um one of the reasons why it frequently is banned because Oh of course it is. <laughs> the the religious right does not like that. Conservative Christians in the 1960s were not a fan of uh listing cuz they list people. They list like Jesus and and like Einstein and the Buddha and Gandhi like all these people. Yes,
1: yes, yes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right? On the same level as, uh, like, 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 the people who are fighting the darkness. And they were like, you are equating these figures. And also, like, Copernicus, which was interesting because he's, like, someone who religious people did not like in his time. <laughs> so... Right. Yeah. And on top of that, they also thought that the, the, the Mrs. characters were very witchy and, like, ah, it's the occult. Because religious oh things goodness. are very much blended throughout this with science. So this the other thing is that science and religion are very intermingled in this. There are a lot of like religious I languages. love that.
1: I I okay I love that and I love like this is just a personal thing. I like thinking of like science and religion as fingers on the same hand. Like yeah, I think you can have them together and I hate the idea that religion should exclude science so i love that they're blended in this that's
0: is amazing chef's kiss right chef's kiss to that yeah well and madeline lingle would very much agree with that because she herself was an episcopalian but also someone who was like very interested in science like as i mentioned before And specifically, part of writing this book for her was well. First of all, she said that she didn't. She just kind of like wrote it, and like like it was just something in her head that she had to get out. But then once she wrote it, she realized different meanings that she put into it, kind of after the fact. And one of those meanings was it was kind of a journey. Um, She was writing this book, going up against strict Christian piety and finding her own spirituality within within Christianity that also allowed for faith to not only coexist but also be part of science
1: yes oh my gosh i'm so on board with this you are like i'm getting chills over here i'm so it's onto amazing
0: it. like it's ah oh, it's so good and also a quote i read from merrick Ooh, i don't know how to pronounce this name Ozy weiss Ozy weiss i don't know he's a scholar of literacy education and he says a wrinkle in time is quote a Vision of Christianity as a Form of Science and Science as a Form of Search for Spirituality. And that's very much it. Yes. It's so spot on. Like, and as an agnostic, gotta say, this warms me to my core. <laughs> warms the cockles of my heart. It's It's lovely. And I think I would have liked this even, you know, before I was an agnostic. Like I think this I would have vibed with this heavy. But I will, I you know, we we can't let anything get off too easy because there, there's one aspect of this. This is like the one thing I will knock this book for. When they were listing uh, these people who were like going up against the darkness, aside from Gandhi and the Buddha, she mostly listed Western philosophers and artists and stuff. Like she, like Muhammad
1: is. Very noticeably absent from the list. Yeah,
0: right. And I think, so the Ava DuVernay movie went the route of just, when they got to the part where they listed these people, they stuck exclusively to, like, artists, poets, philosophers, they completely left out religious figures, which is probably um, I can't blame Disney for doing that because
1: i I also feel like that's prob like that's I don't know that's for the best maybe. I don't know that like not to not to get too far into it, but like organized religion has had a lot of problems in the last uh forever, forever yeah. so-, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like I understand that you wouldn't want to alienate anyone and you wouldn't also want to blanket approve of anything else. You know what right. I mean?
0: Yeah. And I, th- and I think they, they, on top of that they just would have gotten so much shit for it. They would have had Ava DuVernay like, like, crucified for, not to use that method. is a heretic. <laughs> right. No, like, <laughs> especially because like, and like, oh boy, because if they would have to Jesus, they probably would also also to Muhammad and that would have, ooh, people would have just ran with that. Right. But also in the movie, they listed more uh, like they they listed, I think, Maya Angelou and, and like Frida Kahlo and people like that, that they didn't. So also people in the West, but also not only white people. So I, I think they did that, you know, you didn't see any uh Eastern philosophers in there. But I think they were trying to stick with people that Kids might recognize at least a little bit.
1: I was gonna say, those are names that you would learn about in even like a fourth grade literature class. Right. You're gonna know who my Angelou is. Like, so, and when
0: I say kids, I mean American kids because this, like this was intended for uh Western audiences, so that, that's what I mean by that. But right, like, they, they, I knew who Frida Kahlo was when I was six, I think.
1: Right, it's hard to think of a time when you don't know. Who Frida is, yeah. or, or Maya Angelou, like I, I think I literally like, she's just always in your consciousness yeah. because you start reading her work so early.
0: Yeah, and also like I, <laughs> I remember seeing a Frida Kahlo painting on the wall in my uh, elementary school art classroom. and I don't think I actually knew her name, but I was just like the eyebrows. I was just, like, I <laughs> <You're laughs> like. The lady from my art class. Yeah, like the lady with like the very bold eyebrows, like love her. I I loved how colorful it was. That's like mainly what I remember. Basically, like this is just the biggest tell that this was written by like a white lady in the 50s. You know, it's it's a little Eurocentric, but that's the main thing I'm really going to knock it for. So nothing is too sacred to criticize on this podcast.
1: Right exactly and it's important to call out media when it is very eurocentric because it is limiting especially when we're talking about media that's specifically aimed at children because they need to be exposed to as many different cultures as possible
0: yeah and like also i I think especially in a book like that could have been a way because because I feel like with books you can throw in like words kids might not know and and like people the kids don't know.
1: And they'll look them up. Right. Like that's what. Because they they know how to spell it. That's what like if you read a name in a book that you don't recognize, you know how to spell it so you can look it up somewhere. Exactly.
0: And so if they had thrown in uh, more Eastern philosophers, kids would have, or these days, kids would like, just type it into Google. But like back in the day, right. they could have like looked it up in an encyclopedia or something.
1: Right, it would have been, like, a good opportunity for learning. Yeah,
0: but anyway, so the the happy medium that I mentioned, so two things with that. One, that is, like, early in the book when Meg's having trouble at school and she kind of reacts very harshly to things at school that happen to her. And her mom's like, you really should try to find a happy medium. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, it's like a callback to that. It's great. Uh, the second thing I want to point out about that is that in the 2018 movie, the, the Happy Medium is played by Zach Galifianakis.
1: I did not know he was in it, and that makes me so
0: happy. It's it's funny. Like I I'm okay with that.
1: It's I love good. it. I love it. Uh, I I love Zach Galifianakis, and here's the reason why. I once watched an interview with him. I don't even remember what it was for, but he said that. He always remembers that his dad smelled like diesel fuel and garlic. and I was like, oh my God, mine too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's such a point
1: I, but if you but if you had a dad who came home feeling smelling like diesel, that smell is like oddly wonderful
0: to you like I
1: love that smell because it makes me think of my dad oh yeah any
0: smell can be like lovely and sentimental if it's like something that's nostalgic for you
1: right so me and Zach Galifianakis get a little teary eyed every time we smell diesel (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I
0: love him because of the show Between Two Ferns if you've ever seen that it's uh amazing I love it so much I I love that uh Uh, but yeah so that that was just a fun surprise in that movie that uh, and like they also imply that in the movie, only the movie, they imply that like the happy medium and Mrs. what's it like are kind of a thing, which is but like in a weird funny way, like it's it's not like it's not like, I'm not talking like forced Creepy. romance. It's 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 just funny. You know, that, that that's a a nice little moment in the movie. Excellent. But Mrs. what's it also I mentioned she transforms into a, actually i don't think i mentioned this so i mentioned that there are centaur-like beings on this planet and uh at some point they have to fly somewhere and this is what it transforms into one of these centaur pegasus things and <gasps> like they fly <laughs> on her and uh yes with the funny thing okay so in in the newer movie they changed this because they describe it like like she's like a centaur with like kind of a a head that seems it's almost described as kind of like a a marble statue kind of head and so the first movie in 2003 they stayed pretty true to the book but with and also the 2003 movie was a made for tv movie so they have that's the level of graphics we're working with and so if you look (laughs) up like later i'm gonna send you this picture of this (laughs) Send
1: it to me now. I need a visual. I will
0: will do that. I look it up on my phone. I gotta see it. Oh good, I found a GIF. (laughs) I'm gonna text it to you. Oh my god! Thing we're looking at, just look up "Wrinkle in Time," old movie. We're gonna have to make it. a
1: Twitter just to tweet out that.
0: <laughs> 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 but like, oh to be fair, it was pretty true to the book's description. Just, just worse.
1: <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. This. <laughs> oh, uh, wait, is that why they wanted to ban it? Because that- <laughs> of
0: like this is a weird description like i think kids will find this strange like no
1: Uh, uh, oh my gosh the... uh, i cannot stop laughing at that. <laughs> no. I, I just keep repicturing
0: it in my head <laughs> it's horrible it's, but it's <laughs> also wonderful you know it's both. that's
1: what, it's so good it is so good <laughs> it's it's,
0: <laughs> like, it's not even up to the par for like 2003 graphics because it was a made for tv movie Yeah, it
1: looks like somebody made it in Microsoft Paint (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and badly photoshopped it into the picture, the scene of the Uh, kids.
0: And also, so Madeline Langle was alive for that movie and she did not like it. She was like, I thought it was going to be terrible and it is. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: she was like i was sort of against it and now i wish i
0: had never written the book (laughs) oh i don't know what she'd think of like the newer one but i i I don't know but also i just feel like an like
1: an author will never be happy with the movie adaptation of their book ever unless they do the screenplay themselves this is jk
0: rowling and uh and she makes shitty stupid fantastic beast movies i got problems with those movies but anyway we
1: got problems with her out the yin-yang over Absolutely. here <laughs> Absolutely. i've got so many problems with her but i will say that she did do a good thing in taking so much creative control of her her product
0: oh that's yeah like i i'll give her that like with the the originals right. the
1: originals she made sure that she was like an active part of the screenwriting and all the other stuff that she like had final say on stuff so it goes to her only for taking creative control and making sure that what was turned out from the studio was what she wanted yeah that's the only credit i'm
0: willing to give her and like i i just wish more authors would do that
1: yeah i that's what i'm saying is i wish that like more authors would insist on more creative control yeah
0: but the, in the in the 2018 movie they went for the Mrs. What's it transformational scene um they made her more of a <laughs> like a leafy creature like they just went a totally what? different route uh actually i'll see if i can find a picture of that one too it's interesting in a different oh. way
1: <laughs> well this one's like uh, the leafy green one is weird, also, but like not as funny. So yeah, right. It's it's it just looks like the Jolly Green Giant.
0: Yeah, like, and there's a whole like back part of it where it's like a flowing lettuce leaf that they lay on. It's strange. It's it was an interesting yeah, I don't choice. Know how
1: this would be better than like a centaur Pegasus lady?
0: Yeah, like I don't know. It it was it... a choice. It's a
1: choice, I guess. Nothing's going to top the 2003 one. It was perfect. They should have just super cut that one into the 2018
0: movie. Uh, Honestly, it was perfect as is. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> uh, how do i not
1: remember that specifically i've seen that movie before how did that not stand out to me more <laughs> i feel uh, like
0: maybe we just blocked it out
1: uh, yeah Or <laughs> maybe our eyes were just so used to seeing horrible graphics at that point in time that we were like yep checks out
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was just kind of par for the course in 2003 the bar was way lower in 2003 <laughs> So there's one last little bit of plot. And after they get done with the happy medium, the children travel to the dark planet of Kamazots, which is succumbed to the black thing and where Meg's father is trapped because he would not succumb to the group mind that causes inhabitants to behave in a mechanical way. The rest of the plot is them going to rescue him from Kamazot. But I want to talk about that planet. So you mentioned before that you see the 2003 movie. So did I. And the main thing I remembered about that, that... Like that is like the the primary thing that I associated with Wrinkle in Time is this scene where they're in a suburban neighborhood and there's children all playing like bouncing balls and jumping rope in a very mechanical, like rhythmical way. Like it's like a pulse, like it's all in sync and identical moms all come out of the identical houses and call them in and they all stop playing like immediately at the same time and then just like drop what they're doing and go in. And it's like very freaky. Right. Like, that is, that shook me as a kid, and it shook me so much that I remembered this very well. It was the first time I'd been introduced to that type of, like, dystopian world where they take things that seem fairly normal in our society, like, like a suburban neighborhood, and make it feel very unsettling and wrong. And basically, like, that's what's going on in Kamazots, is that they're all, it's, a dystopian world because then they also go into the the city and it's like they go into like this corporate building where everyone's like really busy and wearing suits but it's also like it feels wrong and so um
1: it's just like exaggerated reality but to a degree that feels extremely uncomfortable yeah
0: and everyone's like behaving very mechanically so this was probably the very first time that dystopian themes were used in children's literature oh because here in the 21st century, we're very used to young adult, the young adult dystopian genre. Like, overwhelmingly used to
1: it. <laughs> Yeah, if we made a list, it would be, like, pages and pages of dystopian young adult-lit yeah. and kid-lit. Yeah, but,
0: like, in 1962, there was no precedent for this in children's literature. Like, this was a popular-ish, like, it was a well-known enough genre for adults, but, like it was, I don't know, probably seen as like too complicated or dark for kids. And even more so is that what's going on in Camazots is that they're all being controlled by a thing called the it. And it's basically responsible for the, the dark thing. And it's this big brain that sends out signals and they have people watching over them to make sure everyone has their papers and is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And basically everyone is afraid of this authoritarian ruler that is just a giant brain.
1: Okay, I'm seeing why the right would have problems with this. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: like, it's, and this is very apt during a time where, uh, you know, this is right after, not too far after World War II, we're in the Cold War, and... McCarthyism is in full swing. Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, this is very poignant for right now. This is also a time where uh dystopian media is like incorporating aspects of like authoritarian fascist rule because that's kind of like a thing people are more familiar with because of the world wars and like you know hitler and mussolini and like we like we've seen this and so it makes sense that it's then portrayed in media uh but then this then now, it's in kids' media, and so is this too complicated for kids? It was pretty dark for kids, but, like, we have talked about before how stuff that, like, adult media always inevitably gets adapted for kids, and so that's, I think, kind of what this is, is that the she's taking something that's very frequent, in, like, in, in adult literature, like, very, you know, 1984 and whatever, and then making it more digestible for kids, because in this the primary theme is just like good versus evil right so you don't get into like too it doesn't get too complicated but it is understanding that like this authoritarian rule is evil and these kids that are forces of good are fighting it right and also
1: i feel like kids understand at some degree that they are being taught to conform yeah like, I think that's a, a thing that kids realize is happening, that you you need to fit in with the status quo or else.
0: Yeah, especially for kids, say, between the ages of 8 and 12, who are... When
1: they're saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school every single day yeah. and following very strict guidelines and put on very regimented schedules. So yeah. I just feel like kids are aware of that, even though they're kids.
0: Especially like when you get kids who are like, very eager to express their individuality and so i think being presented with a world where individuality is bad and wrong is an interesting thing to introduce to a kid like a kid that might have never considered that there could be a world where individuality is like really bad Or, like, has never considered the concept of an authoritarian government. Do you know what this, you
1: know what did this for me when I was a child? What? That episode of Fairly Odd (laughs) Parents, where he wishes that everyone's the same and everybody's just a gray blob doing the same thing every day. Do you remember that
0: episode? Yeah, I was thinking of a different Fairly Odd Parents episode when you first said that, but yeah, I do remember that episode.
1: That one shook me to my core. <laughs>
0: <laughs> me, me
1: too. Existential crises of childhood.
0: <laughs> I was thinking of the one though where he uh, alters the timeline of his parents not meeting, and like in the timeline where his dad doesn't meet his mom, he becomes a dictator, and like everyone goes around <laughs> saying like we're all dad's children. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> for yeah so that that one shook me that was i mean i think a direct allusion to 1984 and so whenever i read 1984 in high school uh for my english class i was like this is just like that
1: episode of the fairly odd parents Just like fairly odd parents isn't it weird that the things you watch as children sticks with you so much that when you read literary works you're like oh this is just like that episode of the Fairly OddParents.
0: <laughs> <laughs> even like, even though the, like the the show was referencing the media, like,
1: oh, right. It's interesting. The one that you you encounter first is the one that sticks with you. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so. <laughs> So, I think for a lot of kids, that was probably what this was. Uh, Right. And I think this was probably at least partially inspired by 1984. This portion of the book, at least.
1: And just that suburban culture of all houses looking the same. And, you know, the 1950s, early 60s model of Americana was just produced on an assembly line and everything was so uniform. Or... The the aspiration was that everything would be uniform.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and I think this was Lingle sort of going up against the kind of standard suburban white nuclear family structure in favor of you know like Meg's family, which is more eccentric, uh, as we would say now, probably neurodivergent and just like all around different. Her and her little brother both feel different from everyone else in their town and so i I think it's very interesting that like they go to this horrible world and the big horrible things that everyone is the same and like rigidly mechanically conforming to the big brain
1: very relevant yeah i i just this book i love
0: it yes i'm i'm on board and that's why i'm not gonna spoil the ending although the like you know there's no like big you know twists but like how they arrive to it is is always you know interesting to but it's about the journey
1: a fun a fun discovery yeah so book versus movie
0: the book is light years ahead but also i i respect uh aspects of the movie
1: well specifically the um racial differences in the movie the
0: 2018 oh, yeah. movie yeah and like i I was gonna say they don't explicitly say in the book that they're white but also I think with a white author and not explicitly specifying race it's to be assumed but also they do mention like Charles Wallace's like blonde hair and like the mom's red hair and stuff so like there's a few like little references like that but when I was reading it because when I read the book it was when trailers for the movie had come out and I read this in 2017 and I was picturing the actors in the movie. Right. And so I I think that's kind of the cool thing about books is that you can picture who you want to picture.
1: And I think there's a really good instinct to picture yourself in the characters. Mm-hmm. So it probably, if they're not explicitly written as white, maybe if you read the character, you just automatically insert people you know. Yeah. In into the characters so right I like I like the ambiguity that it's for everyone
0: yeah like anyone could read it and think of themselves in Meg's shoes
1: yes every every 13 year old who's ever felt like an outsider which is literally every 13 year old that's ever existed
0: (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) even
1: even the I think I'm convinced that that's just such a tumultuous time for kids that even if you are as aspirational and as perfect as Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys you're still going to feel like you're an outsider. Yeah. So, yeah. It's it's so it's such a a good relatable feeling is that I'm different and that makes me bad and the self-acceptance journey is one we all share.
0: Yeah, and also um the self-acceptance aspect was I think played up a little bit more in the movie, and in particular, like there is a recurring thing throughout the movie where she really hates her hair, and I think that is a really good thing that was written into it. Where like there's a couple points where Calvin, who I haven't talked about a lot, but you know, spoiler alert, he is Meg's love interest in addition to being like a, a character in his own right, and he compliments her hair a couple times in the movie, and she at first is very much like don't say that you don't mean that like kind of thing and eventually she kind of like there's this scene where she's kind of confronted with the the big evil brain thing and she's they present to her to try and get her to like join the the bad side a version of herself with like straightened hair and no glasses and like you know more trendy clothes and stuff and it's like this is who you could be and then you know part of it is her like accepting that she is who she is and that like makes her better and so i i, I like that I think that was that's good
1: that's beautiful i really appreciate that
0: yeah i i think that was that was a good addition and there's also this whole plot line with because in in the book it's more of an emphasis on like Her teacher's not getting her, but in the movie, there is a whole plot about this mean girl that bullies her. And when they are looking, when they're they're talking about how the big evil thing has kind of infected Earth in some ways, too, and they show, like, people kind of at their worst moments, they show, like, that Calvin's dad abuses him and, and stuff. Oh, Uh, verbally, they don't show his his dad hitting him in in the movie, but they also show that the the mean girl has like body image issues and and what seems to be an eating disorder. And so like kind of showing that like everyone's struggling and that kind of theme. And so that was that was an interesting addition. I don't know how I feel. I mean, I haven't decided yet how I feel about having her being like viciously bullied by someone in her her school versus, like, struggling with the teachers more. Right. But, um... I don't hate it. It's... It was an interesting thing to show that, like, the mean girl was you know, having a time of her own.
1: That, you know, encouraging empathy with people who are mean to you is, like, a nice sentiment, but also why torture the poor girl?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. And also, not every mean person has a sad backstory some people are just mean
1: right sometimes people are just evil and it is hard to be empathetic when people are being mean to you
0: yeah and so I it makes feelings you know it, it like I, I could have gone with or without the mean girl plot but I did like the uh the plot of self-acceptance for Meg I think that was good
1: yes I'm glad Meg Accepts herself with her hair as is. Does she have curly hair? Is yeah. that like her hair
0: that she doesn't like? oh Yep. Curly hair acceptance. It's very important, and and also like of course that plays very in a specific way because like she's black, and so I think I think that was right, and especially just a good thing to include in, in addition to her having problems with her personality and how she gets along with her peers. Pass the Crown Act. Yeah, exactly. That's very important. So there are sequels to the book. There's what? a whole I did not universe. I did not know this. There
1: were more of these.
0: Yeah, there's I. They're not especially popular uh, compared to the original. And also, there's never been any adaptations of them. Although there, what I did learn though from in my uh, researching is that I guess in later books meg and calvin grow up and get married and have kids and the kids are characters too and so that that's yeah it's an interesting time uh i don't know that the sequels are essential reading essential reading or anything but uh i remember my because my mom who i mentioned is a big fan of a wrinkle in time she read the first book and then she got the second book from the library and then Stop reading them after that. Like she, she was good. She's like, I'm good. That that's good. Like I've I've had enough of this universe. Yeah. I've got the picture. Yeah. So I I think I the, the first one is very much it can and maybe should be a standalone thing. I I will trust your mom's opinion
1: on this. Yeah. That you can stop after the first. Yeah. And maybe the second. <laughs> yeah. Maybe
0: maybe the second too. The the second one's called a wind in the door. That's kind of fun. I do love these names. Yeah. But yeah. So. Moral of the story here, uh, I love this book. I recommend it to everyone. I recommend the audiobook in particular. But also, you know, if you like to read with your eyeballs, that's chill too. Or both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, get it. I wonder if that's like a thing people use to like help kids learn how to read.
1: I actually have been seeing ads for a technology. Like where your written documents into like audio so you can listen while you read because apparently you absorb information better if you do it that way so it's like a helpful way to study for tests and things like that oh yeah and also it's a very helpful way for people who are dyslexic to consume
0: books good point yep well with all of that yeah, I think that's it for A Wrinkle in Time.
1: It's not really ruined, and I'm so glad that it isn't. Like, after the last few weeks, it was nice to have, like, a reprieve of just a nice, fun book
0: to talk about. Oh, yeah, like a, a, a solid, solid book and not something, like, I would call this thoroughly unruined. Uh, in fact, I maybe like it better after deeply analyzing it like this.
1: Yes, I like it so much that i want
0: to read it now so I'm glad i convinced you
1: i gotta find out that ending you didn't tell me the <laughs> ending so now i've got to read it
0: yeah I'll, I'll just wait till you get there but yeah and we also have two living parents for this no no dead dead parents here oh a missing parent Two
1: living parents yeah two two parents who seem like they are loving that's a first yeah they actually love <laughs> each
0: other uh although one of them was absent but you know not his fault right he just done got disappeared so the, that that's not added to so so far we're just at two two deceased mothers yes. tragic so i do believe next week we are covering we're talking about santa claus santa
1: so no moms uh <laughs> but so next week we're going to be talking about santa and our Santa episode will actually be for the next two weeks, we'll be talking about Santa. So the next next week is going to be Santa until the 20th century. Yeah. So like the origin story of Santa.
0: Yes. Not not the origin story from the claymation. Uh, the, the, the origin origin oh, story. Oh, maybe. Hey, <laughs>
1: <laughs> is that the real one? We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm on the edge of
0: my seat. <laughs> I'm, I hope you guys are ready to get in the Christmas spirit, because uh, we sure as hell are, because uh, it's, been, it's been a tough I'm year. I'm
1: there. <laughs> I am there. I am. It is Christmas time for me already. Yeah. And and this isn't, this isn't, uh, this is November for us when we're recording this, yeah. so um, I'm still on board for Christmas. Yeah. We're going to get you in the Christmas spirit by ruining Santa Claus. <laughs> Merry Christmas,
0: Santa. Sucks. Merry Christmas, <laughs> asshole. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so don't forget to subscribe, please please give us five stars on iTunes and email us at rycpod at gmail.com if you got any suggestions, questions, comments, any of that stuff. Fun anecdotes you want to tell us? Oh yeah, please. We we love we would love to talk to you. And to that, I say, Good riddance, good riddance. <laughs>